Morning, Heritage. Our uh, scripture reading this morning is going to be from Genesis chapter 50. I'll give you a moment to turn there if you like. Genesis chapter 50. It's the last chapter. We're going to look at verses 15 through 20 together. While you're turning there, you'll remember that the book ends with Joseph. Joseph is the great-grandson of Abraham. Uh, Joseph had been, uh, well, his brothers wanted to kill him, but he ended up going into slavery. All his brothers, but Reuben, that is. Anyway, and this is the account of when uh, Joseph is talking with his brothers at the very end of the story. Joseph had has uh, been exalted or raised to the second highest power in all of Egypt. Egypt is a world power this time. And let's read what happens after Jacob, their dad, had died. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, What if Joseph holds a grudge against us and pays us back for all the wrongs we did to him? So they sent word to Joseph, saying, Your father left these instructions before he died. This is what you are to say to Joseph. I ask you to forgive your brothers the sins and the wrongs they committed in treating you so badly. Now, please forgive the sins of the servants of the God of your father. When their message came to him, Joseph wept. His brothers then came and threw themselves down before him. We are your slaves, they said. But Joseph said to them, don't be afraid. Am I in the place of God? You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. This is God's word. Amen. Let's uh, let's pray before we get started this morning. Father, thank you for your word. Um, thank you that we can sit before it now and be taught and instructed by it. So I pray for your grace and your help uh, and your anointing of me as I seek to declare your word faithfully. I pray that I would get out of the way, that you would be made manifest, and that you would be awesome. It is so easy to put you on the dock, God, and to challenge you. People love to challenge you. People love to accuse you wrongly of or malign your character. And so I pray this morning that you would exalt your character, that you would magnify yourself, that you would show yourself strong and mighty among us, and that you would help us as we seek to answer this very, very challenging question uh, that, that we have before us this morning. And I pray that you would give us grace to do so. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, we went to Genesis uh, 50, not because I'm going to be preaching from that text, but because that represents a really good paradigm for where we're headed this morning, in that God is a master at taking evil, the evil things of this life, and turning them for good for the sake of his glory. And so I encourage you to read that text later and to meditate on it, to just spend some time uh, thinking through that as a paradigm after this message this morning. Like our sermon on the existence of God, this is a sermon this morning that's going to require you to think. It's going to be an intellectual exercise, and so it'll be intellectually rigorous. And so my encouragement to you at the outset this morning is that you uh, just think hard with me. And we're going to go hard for uh, the full time this morning. And uh, so let's just buckle up and go for it. Um, and, uh, and, and I want to begin this way by just talking about the obvious. 
in that suffering is one of the great undeniables of life. Um, we can't avoid it. There's nothing we can do to, to sort of uh, save ourselves from suffering. It's just going to come. All of us are going to face it one way or another. Our life uh, is full of brokenness, broken relationships, uh, broken promises, and broken expectations. Murphy's Law uh, says it best, if something can go wrong, it will. And every day, thousands die in our country or in the world from traffic accidents, and thousands more are diagnosed with cancer or some other dreadful disease. Uh, a branch falling on a moving car, uh, the misalignment of a piece of genetic code brings much suffering to one's family. Who, who could predict such things? Oz Guinness uh, puts it this way. He says, our little bodies are as brief as a candle and as fragile as an eggshell. Shakespeare adds his words. He says, each new morn, new widows howl, new orphans cry, new sorrows strike. And then Carl Sandburg penned these words in what he claimed to be the shortest poem ever written in English. Born, troubled, died. And that's it. That's the human condition right there, summed up in a nutshell. To, to, to bring this closer to home, our, our, our sister Rachel uh, Bennett emailed our church asking us to pray for her cousin who just underwent um, a cancer surgery to remove uh, a brain cancer uh, in, in her brain. And after her surgery, post-surgery, um, this is the email that we received from her. And, and, and just think for a moment if this was your child. And this is the email. Le Lexi has severe pain on the right side of her body, leg and arm, not able to move leg at all, can't be touched on the right side, something the doctors are not used to seeing, could be a nerve in the brain, not sure, about five hours of intense screaming, shaking on the left side of her body that would remind you of someone having a seizure. She can't use her left hand, but she's squeezing me so hard her hand is drawing blood. She has a bad headache, cannot move her neck. She stops breathing for what appears to be 30 to seconds to two minutes at a time. Doctor was called out about an hour ago because her heart rate had dropped and has only been between 43 and 51 beats a minute. Vomiting has started two hours ago. I've never seen so much vomit in my life. No medication is helping her. She's had morphine, Valium, Dilaudid, Norco, etc. I'd give anything if I could trade places with her. And then it, it ends this way. No child should have to suffer like that. And, and that's just heartbreaking. And so I just want to ask our church, even as I'm talking about this, to, to pray for Lexi. In fact, let's just take a moment and let's just pray for her now. Father, we lift this, this girl up to you who is in such need of your help, God. And we pray that you would intervene in her life, that you would not only have this cancer removed from her, but Lord, restore her back to health so she is not laying there writhing in pain, God. Be merciful to her family. Help her, encourage her. Even this day, even this moment, God, as the creator of the universe, lift her up, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. But you see, stories like this, they're, they're real, uh, they show up everywhere. Human misery is printed on the pages of the newspaper. It's, 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 on the, it's the headline of the evening news. And so people are asking questions like this. If God is so loving, why doesn't he stop this madness? If God is so powerful, why doesn't he do something to fix this mess? Does God even notice? Does God even care? 
Does God even exist? What is going on? And you see, people are asking real life questions and they want answers for their pain. But in trying to get answers, people often form erroneous conclusions. They say things like, well, if this is the way that God treats people, then I want nothing to do with God. People assume the absolute worst about God. They act like like God just loves to break people's hearts and shatter their dreams and hurt people. But is that who God really is? And, and is that the only explanation for a world filled with, with evil? Namely, to conclude that since evil exists, God must be a monster. Is that the only conclusion? Well, if you're struggling with that question, or, or if you know others who are, my prayer then is that this morning would provide some help to you. And for others, my prayer is that my goal is to strengthen your conviction that in the midst of pain, God is there and he's in control and he's good. Now, typically, it's the atheist or it's the agnostic who advances the problem of evil. But it's important to recognize that the problem of suffering is a problem not felt primarily by the atheist or agnostic, but it's a problem felt primarily by the Christian. Because for the atheist... Understanding suffering isn't really a problem. I mean, there's no God. So there's no sort of confusion of, of I need to find uh, who did this to me. Because in a naturalistic worldview, it just happens. It's just the way the world is. But for the believer, we are the ones asking, we believe in God. Why then does God permit or tolerate or cause a world like the one we have? And that's why people find evil and suffering to be a philosophical problem, while for others they they appear it appears to be a deeply emotional and personal issue. Like the French philosopher Pierre Joe Renau, who said, I don't know if God exists, but it would be better for his reputation if he didn't. So the philosophical from the philosophical standpoint, the problem is stated this way. Three propositions and a conclusion. One, if God is all good, then he would present, then he would prevent evil if he could. Two, if God is all powerful, then he is able to prevent evil. Three, evil exists. Therefore, conclusion, some combination of one through three must be false. That's the philosophical problem of evil. Epicurus, the earliest formulation of this came from Epicurus. The argument of evil from the Greek philosopher Epicurus writing in the early 3rd century. Here's the way he put it. He said, either God wants to abolish evil and cannot, or he can, but he does not want to, or he cannot and does not want to, or lastly, he can and wants to. Those are the four options. If he wants to remove evil and cannot, then he's not all powerful. If he can, but does not want to, then he's not all good. If he neither can nor wants to, then he's neither powerful nor good. But if God can abolish evil and wants to, why does evil exist? Do you feel that? Do you feel that there? The tension? So this argument has served uh, over history as one of the most compelling arguments against God throughout human history. And to this day, it has caused many people to question the existence of God, or at very least, to fundamentally question his character, to malign him, to say, if that is who God is, that's not the kind of God I want to worship. 
The problem of evil is what 19th century liberal critics call the Achilles heel of Christianity. It's the, it's the sort of the, the big dog at the top of the mountain of objections against God. We have, we have to do something with it. John Stott says, the fact of suffering undoubtedly constitutes the single greatest challenge to the Christian faith. Now, I start that way because I want to want to be really real and transparent this morning. We have folks who are here this morning who uh, have struggled through this question, have wrestled with this. And we want to dare deal uh, head on with this objection. The world are, because the world around us is looking for answers to these questions. And unfortunately, people, as I said, end up trying to solve the problem of evil by denying something essential to God's character. So the most common solutions to this problem... Are, are, are the following three things. Number one, just deny the existence of evil, right? Because if evil doesn't exist, well, we don't have a problem at all. So let's just deny the existence of evil. Or the, 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 the more prominent the, uh, method is to attack God's character by saying God is not in control. If God was really in control, he would stop this. Or by saying God is not good because if God was really good, he would do something about it. So the first thing is people try, some people have tried and attempted to solve this by denying the existence of evil. They say evil is not what we think it is. It's, it's an illusion of the mind. Sadly, this is the view of Clement of Alexandria in the second century. And today, a modern version of this is advocated by Christian science, which, just to be clear, is a cult. And it argues that evil is simply an illusion and we know that that's absolutely absurd. First, because it's out of touch with reality. It doesn't make sense of life. Evil is all around us. And every single person in this room has been hurt by evil. Second, it, it cr- only creates a new problem. Because why would God create an illusion of things like crime and war and terror and sickness and injury and death and suffering and pain? Why would he create an illusion of that? And third... It's just hurtful to say to a person who is suffering from sickness and injury and death that this is really mean less fan hospital. So we know it's completely absurd. That they're not there. But anyway, people try to surprise by living that God sees if exists, that he's not powerful as what he was. This position by Harold Kushner in book Bangs Have Good relations. That's illegal and unbelievably blasphemous. Scripture commands us to exalt God and to lift him high. The instruct God of Rabbi Kushner is diminished deity. He's not God at all. In order to explain the existence of God and evil at the same time, Kushner strips God of his power, saying that he can't stop evil. Now think about this. Either because in his nature he can't stop evil, which of course is a very discouraging prognosis for a human a race that is literally crying and screaming for an intervention of God's help. Either because God can't in his nature do anything about it, or, this is even worse, that God has chosen to limit the exercise of that power because he values the frill of man so highly that he does not want to intervene and sort of mess man up or keep man from doing what man wants to do. What a horrible, what an absolutely horrible set of choices there. Now, I don't know what Bible Kushner is reading, But that is not the God of the Bible. God's love is clear all the way through Scripture. God's love is a perfecting love. It is not a pampering love. 
Many times God stops us from doing stupid things. Is that not a testimony in here? How many times has God stopped you from doing a boneheaded thing? Saved you from great misery. And he's constantly restraining evil in the world. Think about his his sovereign restraint over evil in the world. You don't think God's restraining evil in the world? I mean, come on. If it were not so, our culture would have self-destructed by now. We are animals. We would have absolutely ripped each other to shreds if it wasn't for the restraining mercy of God on us. And furthermore, if God had not acted upon your will that resisted him, that was in bondage, that did not want him, if God did not first love you, you would not love him and you would not sit here this morning saved. So we need God as the hound of heaven to track us down, to tackle us in his love, to regenerate us, to change our hearts, to make us new. God has to act upon us. God, thankfully, praise God, does intervene into our broken and sin-cursed world, and he does fix things. So I don't know what Kushner's talking about. So stripping God of his power is not the problem, the solution to the problem of evil. And then the third approach, of course, is then just to deny the goodness of God. Well, maybe God's all powerful, but he's not loving or good. Instead, he's just an aloof, distant, cold God. He doesn't care. And you better just get used to it. And so you end up with sort of this just ethereal view of God. People just, God is distant. He is, he's almost like the God, uh, the divine watchmaker who wound the world up like a clock and then just left it alone and never to touch it again. The God of deism. Well, these are ways that people have tried to solve the problem of evil. But clearly, as you can tell, these are not appropriate solutions to this problem. But is, the, the question is that, is that really the best? Is that really the best we can do? Is that really the conclusion? That evil is just an illusion. That God is not really powerful. That God is not actually loving. See, while it may be tempting to deny the goodness of God or the power of God uh, or the reality of evil, we must not. We must not. God is all powerful. God is all good. And yet, evil exists. And all those things are true and yet non-contradictory. And my burden this morning is to show you how. And for now, and we'll get to that answer in a moment. For now, Oz Guinness says this. He says, the biblical response to the problem of evil, this is good, is not to minimize the apparent contradiction. Instead, the Bible exaggerates it. The Bible moves in a paradoxical way, contrary to what we might expect, reinforcing, rather than rejecting these three great truths, but it does so in a way that these three unshakable truths become comforting rather than challenging. The Bible provides us with a most satisfying response in the face of evil and suffering that we could hope for. So let me pivot now to a more robust and biblical answer uh, so that as Christians, see, here's my burden, is that we don't feel like we're on, uh, that it's fourth down and 60 on our own two-yard line. And that we just have to punt the ball by quoting Deuteronomy 29, that the secret things belong to the Lord. And then change the subject. Because that's a cop-out, and, and that is not necessary. There are good, robust, biblical answers to this challenge. And here's the thing, and here's, here's what I want to press upon you this morning, is that any legitimate answer to the problem of evil must lead you back to God. 
So you can't answer the question by saying something like, well, you know, sin is in the world because man has done sinful things or merely or sin is in the world because it's Satan's fault or something like that. Because if we're going to deal with a question faithfully and robustly, we have to go all the way back to God himself. And that's why the problem of evil, and this is important, is not first a problem about the existence of God. It's a problem concerning the character of God. So let's move toward a biblical answer to the problem of evil. What I mean by that is this, what's being called into question here is, is God really good? That's the real pressing issue. So let's move to a, a scriptural answer. And, and in scripture, we see three things. One, evil is real, as we've already talked about. Two, God is sovereignly in control of all things. And three, God is good. So let's start with the first one. Evil is real. That is something I trust all of us can agree to this morning. Evil exists. But the question is, what do we mean by evil? This is actually a very provocative question. Because to assert that there's such a thing as evil presupposes that we have to have a standard by which to judge something as evil. And that standard is good. So philosophers define evil as the lack of good. In other words, there is no way to define evil unless you first start with goodness. The standard is good. But the question is, who gets to define good in an atheistic world? Or another question is, by what standard does an atheist determine what is considered good so that evil can be properly distinguished from it? Moreover, without God, how does an atheist make any moral judgments whatsoever? Think about this. Or, or, have, or has the atheist just sort of reduced himself to a might-makes-right ethic so that whatever the most amount of people in society agree on, that will be the standard. As Ravi Zacharias is fond of saying, as I said a couple of weeks ago, in some cultures they love their neighbors, in other cultures they eat their neighbors. Do you have a preference? The point is, without God, the atheist is really in no position to be challenging the Christian about the problem of evil. Because what is evil in an atheistic world? From a purely naturalistic framework, there's no basis for objective moral values. So in order to make sense of right and wrong, and here's the real irony, in order to make sense of right and wrong and morality and immorality, the atheist must borrow from the Christian worldview, which ends up affirming the truthfulness of Christianity. So what is evil according to Scripture? Well, evil is that which is contrary to God's holy character and the will of God. It's an attitude of action or action of malice, intending to do that which is contrary to God's will. And according to Scripture, there are many iterations uh, or versions of evil. First, there is what we call moral evil. This is just sin and transgression that dominates our world. And I'm not talking about the more obvious forms of evil like rape and terrorism and mass murder and genocide, that's obvious. I'm talking about more subtle forms of evil, so pervasive that it's actually in every human heart. So you wake up and you look at yourself in the mirror and you realize there's some, some corruption there inside. And, and it's a controlling force because Genesis 6-5 says, The Lord saw 
that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And that's an incredible statement. And that, that's just a principle. So that is in the days of Noah. But yet this is, this is true, germane to the human existence. It's extensive. The corruption inside of us, every intent, really, of the thoughts of our heart, only evil continually. It's no wonder people love to argue with God. They can't believe that about themselves. They refuse to acknowledge such things about themselves. The reality is the world is, is under a curse and it's inhabited by people who are evil to the core, morally speaking. And that's why we have all these sinners trying to survive. Think about this. All of us trying to survive in a sin-cursed world, colliding with one another. So is it any wonder why we have racial tension and government corruption and broken marriages and abused and abandoned children? Is it any wonder that we keep having mass shootings and that we keep having situations of racial hostility and anger towards one another? That's moral evil. And then there's supernatural evil. There's a force of demonic beings that are as old as the creation who are, who have a disposition and spiritual, by spiritual nature they are corrupt. They are evil spirits. They are liars and deceivers. And first John says that the whole world lies in the lap of their system. And Revelation 12 tells us that a third of the angels, holy angels, fell from heaven, which constitutes the demonic realm. Their ideology is anti-God and has been from the beginning. These are vile beings that in some ways are clandestine and other ways are very overt. In certain times and seasons, they surface and they manifest themselves in very visible and grotesque ways. Now, at this point... It's interesting that when we think about supernatural evil, that the problem of evil um, ha- ends up creating a significant problem for the atheist. Because if it does anything, it ends up testifying to God's existence, and here's why. If there's no God, all that remains to explain the reality of evil is the physical world. But bits like matter and like atoms and molecules and dust and rocks, they have nothing to say about evil or pain. I mean, what, what is a rock going to say about suffering? The physical world cannot answer the problem of evil. And as a result, nothing in an atheistic worldview is able to explain evil. People know that evil exists, but without God, there's no hope of finding a cause for such savagery. And it's for this very reason that when suffering hits close to home, people look to God either to rescue them from the pain and suffering that they're dealing with, or they look to God to accuse him of bringing that pain and suffering into their life. But in either case, people look to God because they know that a naturalistic, atheistic worldview cannot account for the existence of evil. And then there's what we call natural evil. This is natural calamity. Like decay and death. We see this all around. It's part of creation. It's part of the fallen condition. It's external to us. From cancer to tidal waves and tsunamis. From volcanic eruption to microscopic bacteria. This is a very dangerous place to live. In 2005, John Barry wrote a riveting book entitled The Great Influenza. Subtitled The Story of the Deadliest Pandemic in History. 
And the book is a very well-documented and researched book of the great flu that hit the United States in the early 1900s. And all of it started with a tiny little virus uh, on a farm with some pigs in Kansas. And some soldiers at an army base in Kansas were infected with this virus before World War One, And then they traveled overseas and they ended up in- infecting the world at large with this virus. All in all, over a 100 million people died. Now, this is what we would call a natural calamity. A natural evil which, which we know uh, is a result, of course, of living in a sin-cursed world. So we can be extremely thankful for medical advancement, but this is a very dangerous place to live. So evil is real. Now, in the second place, the Christian must affirm that God is in control. Because the Bible is clear that while evil exists, God is sovereign over all things, which begs a question. Okay, think with me here. If, if man is evil, does that mean that God created man evil? And if God made man evil, then how can we escape the conclusion of Charles Baudelaire, who said, if there is a God, he's the devil. Well, Francis Schaeffer answers that question this way. He says, in response, If God changed man, okay, or made him evil, then it's true he's a bad God. But there's another possibility, namely, man changed himself, man by his own choice is not what he used to be. Alright, what's he saying there? He's saying that Adam fell from what God created him to be and Adam sinned. So Adam introduced sin into the world and as a result, man is no longer what man was intended or created to be. The point is, God is not to be blamed for the evil in man. Humans are. So when it comes to moral evil, we're talking about moral agents who make conscious decisions with their brains to do things that are evil. So when skeptics talk about the moral atrocities of Rwanda or the Holocaust or the killing fields of Cambodia, did God do those things? No, human beings did those things. Don't blame God for the Holocaust. That was Hitler and the Nazis. Who is responsible for the killing fields of Cambodia? Well, that was the atheist Paul Pot and his his Khmer Rouge regime who in the aftermath of the Vietnam War wiped out some two million people. And what about Rwanda? The Hutus and the Tutsis in, uh, inflicted tribal hatred on one another. Human beings killing each other. In other words, God has given us freedom to make choices in this life and that has resulted in the human race doing some horrible things to one another. But then others will say, okay, well, that's not the end of the story because we still have horrible things happening in the world that human beings had nothing to do with, right? So what are we going to say about that? So like tsunamis and earthquakes and tornadoes and hurricanes? And the answer is, well, of course we have those things. Of course we have those things and they operate according to the laws of nature that God made. And sadly, sometimes those things do inflict natural suffering. The skeptics come along then and say, well, then if God is powerful, 
then then he could stop such things from taking place. And if he chooses not to stop it, then how is he good? Why did God create a universe where such terrible natural disasters take place? Well, let me ask you a question. What's the alternative? The alternative to a universe dictated by the laws of nature is a universe that's discretionary. So today, if you drop a pin, it falls to the ground because of the law of gravity. But tomorrow, if you drop a pin, it shoots straight up into the sky. Because if the world was discretionary and did not operate according to the laws of nature, then our world would be whimsical and unpredictable. But a whimsical universe, human action, would have no consequence. Nothing would be uniform. And if nothing is uniform, then we're left with complete and utter chaos. Just people doing whatever they want. And there's no uniform laws of nature. Incidentally, the beauty of these scientific laws is that they actually reinforce our faith in an intelligent creator. The more we understand science, the more we wonder at the breadth and sophistication and the integrity of God's creation. Think about this. In fact, the very reason science flourished so much in the 16th and 17th centuries under Galileo and Newton was precisely because their conviction that the laws of nature being discovered and defined reflected reflected the influence of a divine lawgiver. One of the fundamental themes of Christianity is that the universe was built according to rational, intelligent design. It's uniform. It works. He created it that way. Just take one example. Okay? So let's try to bring this down a little bit. I know that a lot of this is intellectual and it's a a bit heavy. Keep hanging in here with me. It's very important stuff. But just take one example. Why do we have earthquakes? Well, according to secular geologists, the reason we have earthquakes is that underneath the ground are massive tectonic plates that move. Okay? And these tectonic plates, it turns out, are absolutely a prerequisite for life on earth to exist. According to two secular geologists, Peter Ward and an astronomer, Donald Brownlee, in their book Rare Earth, plate tectonics work to separate land from the ocean, which keeps us from drowning. So if we didn't have tectonic plates under the ground, this world would be flooded with water. We'd all be dead. Earthquakes are an unfortunate byproduct of plate plate tectonics, but without those plates, we would all drown. The point is, the laws of nature are used by God to create and preserve life. But see, nobody wants to talk about how God has created the universe to, 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 in such a way that that helps create life and sustain life. No, they want to attack God and say, there was an earthquake and people died. How dare you, God? You wouldn't even exist if it wasn't for plate tectonics. Think about this. The laws are double-edged. Tectonic plates shift and cause massive earthquakes. But the sun shines and gives us vitamin D. But the sun also shines and exposes us to radiation and gives us cancer. But if the sun and the tectonic plates were under the ground did not exist, we'd all be dead anyway. God knows what he's doing. All right, so that's a partial answer. But there's a stronger and more biblical answer to all of this. The Bible tells us that God is absolutely sovereign over all things. 
And by that, I mean that he is in charge of all things, including, hear this, his sovereignty over evil, which means God has the power and the right to use evil and suffering in this world for his own wise, holy, and good purposes. And he does. And that should be a great comfort to us because it means that nothing is outside of his domain. No cell or molecule in the universe is outside of his reign. It's a comfort to know that because consider a world in which God is not in control. Okay? Deuteronomy, we get a lot of scripture. Deuteronomy 32, 39. See now that I, even I, am he, and there is no God besides me. I kill, and I make alive, I wound, and I heal, and there is none that can deliver out of my hand. Now, when people read verses like that, they are embarrassed for God. And they try desperately to save God from a bad reputation. And so what they end up doing is, out of embarrassment for God, they end up creating a God of their own imagination because I just can't deal with a God like that who heals and kills, who, who, who gives life, who wounds and heals as well. I, I can't deal with that. So they create their own God. But listen to me. God is not concerned with protecting himself from being misunderstood by arrogant people who are arrogant enough to sit in judgment of him. God has no need to hide from the truth that he has a good reason for the existence of evil. God says, I have a good reason for the existence of evil, and I don't care what you think about that. 